Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the great question that humanity has always faced. How do we truly flourish? If we're truly going to flourish as people, Christ's answer is the kingdom of heaven. This is the essence of his message as Matthew summarizes it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom of heaven, what is this? What is the kingdom of heaven? How do we enter the kingdom of heaven that we might flourish? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a way of referring not so much to the kingdom, but to God. It is about God's reign and rule over people, over places. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is a shocking declaration because he is saying the kingdom and reign of God is at hand because I am present and among you. The rule and reign of God is made visible and is ruling and reigning over the world because the king of the kingdom is present in the person of Jesus. So everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does, everything he teaches, all the actions, they're just signs and demonstrations of the rule and reign of God expressed in and through him. But the question is, how do we find our place in this rule and reign of God? And what does it look like for us to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus helps us envision what it looks like when the light of heaven breaks into the lives of ordinary people. It's a vision of what it looks like when people, in fact, repent and enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus paints a picture of what true God-centered flourishing looks like for every single person that might become his disciple. Which means that the Sermon on the Mount is not a description of life that we can attain on our own. This is not some humanist vision that we can pick and choose and feel like it might benefit our lives in some way. The Sermon on the Mount is a vision of human flourishing that is only available through communion with God the Father as he revealed himself through his son Jesus by the power of his spirit. Outside of the Trinity, this vision is not possible for us. And so this flourishing will only be experienced, as one scholar puts it, through faithful, heart-deep, whole person discipleship by following Jesus' teachings and life. And so it's going to take us 33 sermons to get through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And, and while this sounds excessive, I want to assure you it's not. We will not be able to plumb the depths of the mystery of this sermon. In fact, I hope only to increase your awe and wonder over this sermon so that you return to it again and again as the most vivid image of the kingdom that we have. And should we come to this sermon again and again, Christ will transform us. And so my hope this morning is to look at how the Sermon on the Mount starts and how it ends because we have to grasp how it begins and how it finishes in order to make sense of the whole message. If we fail to understand that, we'll fail to understand the, the substance of the message. And so my hope today is just to give us a bit of a framework for the next 33 weeks as we work through the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, as always, please take one of our gray Bibles with you and everything will be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed 
Let's picture this scene. Jesus on the mountain, crowds of people and the disciples. Until recently, the disciples were indistinguishable from the crowd. They were just living their lives. But then came Jesus and he called them with two simple words, follow me. And in the previous chapter, uh, Matthew describes how James and John, Andrew and Peter left their fishing nets. They left their careers. They left their families behind and they went and followed Jesus. Of course, it makes us wonder, like, what on earth was happening that they would leave behind their career and their loved ones to follow this person they barely know? Why is it that people so often reorient their entire lives around this Jesus of Nazareth? And the answer is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. There's something about Jesus and the way he expresses God's rule and reign that draws people to himself, even when it doesn't make total sense from an earthly perspective. And now here they sit on a mountain with Jesus. And this isn't just a passing comment. This is loaded symbolic imagery. Throughout Israel's history, uh, important things happen on mountains. This is where God brings his people to meet his people, where God reveals himself again and again to his people. And so Jesus takes the disciples up a mountain, but the subtext is that he's now going to illuminate something about God in a new way to his disciples. Now, of course, at this point, they have no idea that as they ascend this hill, as they sit before Christ, they are sitting with none other than God himself. But it wouldn't have been lost on them that they're on a mountain. That this is a spiritually loaded and significant moment. That Jesus is going to do something profound on this mountain. And so there's a large crowd gathered. The disciples are before their master. And Jesus opens his mouth to teach. And the first word they hear is this. Blessed. Blessed. They don't just hear it once. They hear it nine times. Blessed. The Sermon on the Mount begins with what we now call the Beatitudes. These nine blessed statements. On this mountain, the disciples have found the blessed life. But let's admit it. When we say blessed, that's a really vague and churchy word. You might be thinking of Dana Carvey's church lady in SNL. You know, like, what does blessed mean? And now it's more like a hashtag. Last time I checked, 107 million posts on Instagram have used the hashtag blessed. And if you scroll through them, it paints a very confusing picture of what blessedness is. Beach body ready, blessed. Exercising hard, a new exciting job, blessed, blessed. Traveling to the dream destination, timely self-help advice, supportive friends, blessed, blessed, blessed. New art supplies, finding $5, a healthy baby, a scripture quote, all a part of the hashtag blessed lifestyle. Typically, when people use the word blessed, they want to say that life or the universe or even God has been favorable to them. They are the recipients of something good. They have been blessed. But when you look at the amalgamation of images in this hashtag blessed lifestyle, it doesn't look at all like what Jesus says when we're blessed. This is the blessed life, according to Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, Jesus is not using the word blessed in the same way that popular culture is currently using the word blessed. So what does Jesus mean when he says blessed? The Greek word for blessed is makarios, and, and it's an unfortunate word in some sense because it's very difficult to find an English equivalent. Most translations, they're going to translate it as blessed. But some translations and some commentators actually translate it as happy. And that's helpful depending on your definition of happiness. Pharrell Williams had a hit song, Happy, and the chorus goes, clap your hands if you feel like happiness is the truth. And we're inclined to clap along because happiness does feel like a truth. Blessed is Pharrell Williams, for he has the secret to happiness. You know, our cultural moment, we're obsessed with happiness. It's an entire industry. There are books upon books upon books about the path to happiness. So happiness clearly strikes a chord with humanity. But if Jesus says, happy are you, if Jesus is offering happiness to his disciples, what kind of happiness is it? When someone says, I'm happy, what's your first reaction? Aren't you inclined to say, how come? How come? Did you get some money on your walk? Did you get a good night's sleep, a promotion, some good news? What happened? Tell me you the reason. How did you acquire said happiness? And it's because our assumption is that happiness is related to our circumstances. Happiness is a reaction to a perceived good that has happened to us. It is a quick, light, and momentary emotion that we feel in response to a perceived good. And so our world is rendered happy when this happens. This is not the kind of happiness implied in the Beatitudes. This is not the kind of happiness that is in blessed. The poor in spirit, they're not singing the same tune. It's a different kind of happiness at work. Blessed can only be happy if it describes the person who's not superficially happy, but substantially happy. A happiness not in good fortune or fleeting moments, but grounded in something much, much greater. Well-being, even when all is not well. True flourishing, even when all the circumstances around the person look like it should stamp out their life. Joy, even in the face of the shadow of death. We can only say happy are the poor in spirit instead of blessed, so long as we mean they're not superficially happy, but substantially happy. Happy because it is well with them. They're on the true path to well-being and flourishing and joy. But what's the source of their happy state? How did they get there? Jesus says, poverty, mourning, thirsting, hungering, suffering, persecution. 
That doesn't sound like happiness or blessedness. That is not the typical outline for a self-help book on happiness. This is not going to be a bestseller, Jesus. This is not going to get on Oprah's book club. This doesn't even sound like the sort of person we would say God has blessed. This is not the sort of person we would describe as blessed. And so that Beatitudes, they're topsy-turvy. They appear upside down and they will always appear that way until we allow Jesus to help us see the world right side up. And what we need to see in the Beatitudes is that they start and end with the same promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're not superficially happy, but substantially happy because the light of God's kingdom has already broken into their lives. Theirs is already the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's well with them. That's why they have well-being. That's why they can be described as blessed or happy. For each beatitude, you could, say, you could hear Jesus saying, congratulations. Congratulations, it's well with you. Happy are you, blessed are you. Congratulations, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. But I want us to acknowledge something. It is really tempting to read these Beatitudes as if-then statements. If-then statements. Life is full of if-then statements, so it's not surprising if you read it this way. If you clean your room, then you can have dessert. If you style your hair a certain way, then you can have a compliment. If you chase a stranger, then you will be weird. If, then. But if we apply this if-then logic to the Beatitudes, what happens? If one is poor in spirit, then one can receive the kingdom of heaven. If one mourns, then they will be comforted. And so on. So suddenly... The Beatitudes look like entrance requirements into this kingdom of heaven. They seem like something we must do, an attitude we must learn, a behavior we must adopt in order to get our blessings from God. Be a certain way, act a certain way, and then you get your blessing. But let me be clear, reading the Beatitudes as if-then statements is a complete mistake. This is not how we should read the Beatitudes. They are not if-then statements. They are declaration promise statements. Declaration promise statements. Let me show you. Blessed are the poor in, is, is the declaration. Blessed are the poor. Why are they blessed? Because of the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Why are they blessed? Well, that's the declaration. Here's the why, the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes aren't saying, be this sort of person and do all these sort of things, then you can have the kingdom of heaven. They aren't formulas. They're descriptions. This is what it looks like when someone is already in the kingdom of heaven. This is what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. They're not superficially happy, but substantially happy because the kingdom is already theirs. And it doesn't look like what we would expect. Poverty in spirit, mourning and hungering and thirsting and facing persecution. But that's the way of Jesus. He shows us that we've seen the world upside down until we allow him to show us the world right side up. He wants us to see that true happiness, true blessedness, true well-being and flourishing is only possible when we are citizens of his kingdom. 
and it'll look upside down until you allow him to show you it right side up. So we've looked at where the Sermon on the Mount begins. It begins with the Beatitudes, a snapshot of what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven is already yours. But now we need to turn to the end of the sermon because the end describes how we enter into the life of the Beatitudes. And so we need to flip forward a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 7. At the very end, verses 24 through 27, Jesus draws the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion with this parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. If you grew up on the West Coast, people have warned you about the big one. Tip number one, the last place you want to be when the big one happens is here, anywhere. You don't, you don't want to be on the West Coast when it happens. I don't care where you are, you don't want to be here. But where you definitely don't want to be is at the Empress Hotel in Victoria. So my dad's a civil engineer, and one of his major clients for most of his career was the Empress Hotel because he had a specialized, specialization in earthquake proofing. Well, the harbor at Victoria is fake. They filled it in with sand. And so people don't know this, but the Empress is actually sinking by about a centimeter a year, every year. And my dad has told me, look, the big one, you're probably going to die anyways, but you're definitely going to die if you're the Empress. Because it was built on sand, not on a rock. Jesus is saying there's a certain way of building your life that can have substance and security, and a lasting foundation. And there's a way of building your life that is foolish, that will fall apart, that won't have any lasting foundation. And so he invites everyone who has heard this sermon of his in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, anyone who's heard his words, not just to hear them, but to build their life upon them, to actually do them. And should we not put his words into practice. Should we hear them but not be doers of his word? He says, you're building your life on sand. You're being foolish. You'll have no lasting substance. And it appears, and this is surprising, it appears that Jesus clearly believes that it's possible for us to put the Sermon on the Mount into practice. That he's not just describing some idealistic future when the kingdom of God arrives, but he's explaining a reality you can actually live here and now. And here's how you can know this. He talks about being slapped on the cheek. Do you really think when eternity arrives on earth that people are going to be walking around slapping you on the face so you can turn the other cheek just so you can live out the Sermon on the Mount? Of course not. Jesus is describing what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven breaks into earth here and now. And he is teaching us that you can actually live this out. But the Sermon on the Mount is a very high calling and a very difficult calling. And at many points, we might find ourselves wanting to argue with Jesus because there's many, many things in the sermon that go against the grain, that rub us the wrong way. If we take a 30,000 look, 30,000 foot look at this survey. If we just survey the land really quickly, here's some of the things Jesus says. If you're angry at your brother, you're liable to judgment. If you call someone a fool, 
you're liable to the flames of hell. If you look upon someone with lustful intent, you've committed adultery. And it's better to gouge out an eye than to sin. Marriage is unbreakable except on the grounds of, of, of adultery. Jesus teaches us not to resist evil, even if it means our own hurt and humiliation. If we're sued, we should give more than what's being demanded of us. Jesus even teaches us to love our enemies. And he teaches us to be extremely careful about practicing our religion for the sake of other eyes. He teaches us to invest our finances radically in the initiatives of God rather than storing them in our bank accounts. And he calls us to radically trust in God's ability to provide for us today and not worry about tomorrow. Jesus warns us about the dangers of judging other people, but he also warns us about the dangers of the judgment that is to come and the terrible possibility of appearing like you knew him, but never really knowing him at all during your earthly life. Can we accept this teaching? Can we hear this teaching and put it into practice? Can we build our life upon these words and make them our substance, make them our true foundation so that our life is built upon the rock that will last? I think on many points in the sermon, we're more inclined to argue with Jesus, to push back against Jesus, to soften what he's saying, to make it more palatable and manageable and less inconvenient. And the Welsh pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, is very helpful on this point. Here's what he says. If you find yourself arguing with the Sermon on the Mount at any point, it means either that there's something wrong with you or else that your interpretation of the sermon is wrong. When I read the sermon and I want to argue with it, well, I repeat. It means either that my whole spirit is wrong or else I'm interpreting that particular teaching in a wrong and false way. If you criticize the Sermon on the Mount at any point, you are really saying a great deal about yourself. And Lloyd can say that with so much force because the Sermon on the Mount perhaps gives us the best picture into the kingdom of heaven that we have in all of Scripture. And we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We cannot do what Jesus says. His words cannot become the foundation of our lives without repentance. Anyone who wants to hear and do what Jesus says must come to grips with this fundamental posture of the kingdom, repentance. As Matthew's gospel begins, as Jesus goes around from village to village before the Sermon on the Mount, his message is summarized as this, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is the way into the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is the way in which we should read the Sermon on the Mount. It's never the Sermon on the Mount that needs to change. It's always us. If we want the light of the kingdom of heaven to break forth into our lives, we repent. We come to Jesus, we listen to his words, and we build our lives upon his words. And I want to be clear, repentance doesn't mean always trying to feel bad, trying to muster up guilt, trying to muster up remorse. Granted, sometimes when you repent, these sort of convicting feelings might accompany it. But repentance is fundamentally a turning away, a turning away from yourself, a turning away from culture, a turning away from all the stories that have defined you, and a turning to Jesus. Repentance is always realigning our thoughts and our hearts with his ways and his thoughts and his heart. It's to change our mind. It's to adopt a new point of view. Repentance 
is acknowledging that only Jesus sees the world right side up. And we will always live in the world upside down apart from him. And so we repent. But even if we repent, even if we want to accept Christ's teachings, is it really possible to live them out? Because it is a very high calling, a dangerous calling, a difficult calling. Let me give you an example. Say you're, you're reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount. You're, you're digging into the teachings. You're trying to build your life upon the Sermon on the Mount. You have this posture of repentance and you come across Christ's teaching on anger. And here's what he says. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now let's say you have a disposition toward anger. You've really struggled with anger and you've tried to be repentant about it. You're open to changing, but suddenly you see, even if you could keep your anger in control, that is insufficient because your anger is destroying you according to this passage. Now you see better than before that your spirit is impoverished. Your harsh thought, your swallowed comments, and the insults that actually do slip through your lips, they are no small thing before God. And so you mourn. You mourn the weight of this problem. You mourn the way anger has disordered your soul. You mourn the way anger hurts others. You mourn the way anger is present in this world and destroying this world. And through this process, you start to become meek. Because you realize that you're not even strong enough to change your own soul, to change your own thoughts, to change your own mind. But slowly, because you want to build your life on this world, word, a hunger develops in you a desire to change, a desire to fulfill the words that you've read from Christ, to see these words actually change your life. And over time, by his grace and power, you begin to change and you start to become more merciful, merciful towards yourself as a broken sinner and merciful towards others who are also struggling with the same sin that you have. And that mercy starts to purify your heart. You actually start to see God more clearly and you start to seek peace which is a way of saying you start to seek what is right and good in the world. And who knows, maybe this work of redemption in your life helps, moves you to start helping other people who've struggled with anger and who are struggling with anger still. Of course, our transformation is not always this linear and tidy. It doesn't always follow the logical progression of the Beatitudes. But do you see, should you repent and build your life upon Christ's words, Jesus will build the life of the Beatitudes in you. You don't have to try to become the Beatitudes. What you have to do is take a posture of repentance and come to Christ and build your life upon his words. And by the power of his spirit, he starts to develop the postures of the Beatitudes and the actions of the Beatitudes in your soul. But how can his words do this? How is his word powerful enough that if we simply come to it with repentance, it can reorder the disorder of our souls? Well, look at how Matthew ends the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Jesus has an authority unlike any other. He's no mere scribe. 
He's no mere teacher of the law. He's not a special sage or just a notable rabbi. He's much, much more than that. He has a different kind of authority. So if we join his disciples on this mountain, if we come and hear his teachings, we are sitting and listening to none other than God himself. Jesus manifesting the rule and reign of of God because Jesus is God in the form of a person. And so should we repent and build our lives on his words? Of course his words transform us. Because his words are from the kingdom of heaven. They have power. They are the kingdom of heaven. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the answer to this question humanity has. How do we truly flourish? And the answer is you can only truly flourish in communion with God the Father through his Son by the power of his Spirit. And by adopting a posture of repentance toward God's word, and should you build your life on his word, you will discover the blessed state. You will have substantial happiness, well-being, even when all is not well. True flourishing, even when it looks like life should stamp out everything that's going on in your life. Joy, even in the shadow of death. That's what's possible if we repent and build our lives upon Christ's words. And so as a church, our greatest witness to this city is not the campaigns we can build, not the things we can do, but building our lives upon the Sermon of the Mount so that we become living examples and embodiments of it. Because that's Christ's vision, that we would become light for all to see, that these words truly would reorder the disorder in our souls and make us shine in this world as light. So may it be so. May God give us the grace to truly come to Christ's words with a posture of repentance. And may his words make us the people of the Beatitudes.